when the explosion of cable television and the fact that the NCAA couldn't control those deals, that's what led to enormous amounts of new money uh, coming coming into the system and, and to, the, to the point now where there was always a strong consumer demand for this product. But the fact that we could, we're looking at worlds where football coaches might make eight, nine, 10 plus million dollars a year, that wasn't the thing in the 60s and 70s. Television has made that possible. Welcome to the Acton Line Podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. Eric Cohn, Acton's Director of Marketing and Communications, sits down with Matt Brown, sports journalist and author of the Extra Points Daily Newsletter. They discuss the economic system behind college athletics and athletes' compensation in general. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash podcast. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Matt Brown runs ExtraPointsMB.com, a newsletter that covers all the -the off-the-field activity that shapes college sports, from the largest FBS schools to the smallest NAIA programs. Previously, Matt oversaw SB Nation's college team sites and regularly contributed to SBNation.com's college football coverage, focusing largely on off-the-field issues from conference realignment to media rights to athletic department finances. He's the author of the book, What If? A Closer Look at College Football's Greatest Questions, which covers pivotal moments through college football history, like the Airplane Conference and the University of Chicago's descent from D1 greatness. He has a degree from The Ohio State University by way of brief pit stops at American University and Ohio State's Newark campus. He grew up in football-obsessed Ohio, then lived all over the country, and currently resides in Chicago. Matt Brown, welcome to Acton Line. Uh, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. So we're speaking in the week in between the first two rounds of the NCAA tournament and the Sweet 16 round of the NCAA tournament. Uh, of course, anyone listening to this probably knows that uh, college athletics is big business. Um, where I want to start is, can you give people a perspective of just how big a business college athletics really actually is. Um, not just the money that's at stake in something like the NCAA tournament, but uh, you know we get these anecdotes out of the first two rounds of the tournament that, uh, what is it, the entire, there are three or four assistant coaches at Kentucky who make more money than the entire coaching staff of St. Peter's uh, who beat them in the first round of the tournament. This is really big business. Could you lay out just how big a business college athletics really is for people? It's it's a great question, and I'm 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 going to try to be conservative about an official number here, but I, it it would I I think conservative be would be in the hundreds of millions of dollars, and and by that I mean it, we're looking at this. It isn't just the amount of money that comes from broadcast rights for major tournaments. 
you know, for SEC football, you know, those institutions are going to get $45, $50 million a year. And by the end of this decade, the Big Ten and SEC, we're looking at likely 90 to, if not more, million dollars just for putting, before they sell a single ticket, before they, they sell a single hot dog or parking space. You, of course, you have all of those. You have the entire sponsorships industry for college athletics. The, the T-shirt that I'm wearing now with the University of Delaware Blue Hen on it, you know, that was something that that was uh, you know, brokered and, and the university earns, earns money for, whether that's video games or billboards or hoodies. And then, you know, at the at the lower division one level, the D2 and the D3 level, this is a very big business, not because people are shelling out huge amounts of money to watch Ohio Dominican football or 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 or, you know, uh, Catholic University or or even St. Peter's, the you know, Jesuit school here in the Sweet 16. These schools have these programs because they need the tuition money. They need athletes to come and take a tuition discount because they want to continue playing. And that uh, for tuition dependent private schools keeps many of these in business. Uh, it, it keeps the doors open for some of these institutions. So I think you'd have to look at higher education generally as part of this budget. And you combine all of that, you combine the gambling, the broadcasting, the tickets, the enrollment, the, the alumni donations, the media. It, if it's not a billion dollar a year business, it has to be close. It, it touches so many different facets of American life. If you go back a uh, hundred years, maybe a little more than that, in the college football world, one of the powerhouse teams is the University of Chicago, which now is far more known for its academic programs. I used to live right near there on the south side of uh, the city of Chicago. Um, back then, you know, it was my understanding. Correct me if I'm wrong about this. Um, it, it was something that existed as part of the school, but certainly there's not a whole lot other than the general rules of the game that are comparable to the way that we think of college football now. How did we get here to where this is potentially a you know billion dollar a year industry of athletics attached to educational institutions um, and we'll get into the NCAA as well, but assumedly under this banner of amateurism? You know, it, it is a good question. I would definitely argue, based on my historical understanding, that really college football in the United States has mostly always been a big business. It was a big business with the University of Chicago. And that was really, with Chicago specifically, intertwined with the history of the school. I want to say Chicago's second faculty hire period was Amos Alonso Stagg to come and head their physical education department and coach football, one of the very first and not the first coaches to actually earn a salary, in part because Chicago's administration specifically understood this was a, a, a critical way for them to interface with the general American public. For people at the turn of the century that did not understand the classics or American letters or might have been ostracized from, from higher ed generally, they would know about UChicago. They would know about that campus through their football team, which is exactly what happened. You look at, you adjust for inflation, some of the, the ticket prices for 1905 Yale, early Harvard Yale games, early Michigan football games, early games in the South, they're well over the 50 bucks that, that happen now. So there's always been a commercial and a gambling and a branding marketing interest in, in sports. The single biggest factor that kind of launched this money into the stratosphere, I think, would have been the deregulation of television broadcasts, which happened with the Oklahoma v. Regents case in 1984, went up to the Supreme Court that, that allowed universities and conferences to make their own television deals. The amount of money that schools made from radio broadcasts, the turn of the century, the heyday of Chicago football, wasn't really very much money. 
even even not adjusted for inflation, it wasn't very much money. But when the explosion of cable television and the fact that the NCAA couldn't control those deals, that's what led to enormous amounts of new money uh, coming coming into the system, and, and to the to the point now where there was always a strong consumer demand for this product. But the fact that we could, we're looking at worlds where football coaches might make eight, nine, ten plus million dollars a year—that wasn't the thing in the '60s and '70s. Television has made that possible now, and that—that that is what you're seeing now. You'll see these uh, anecdotes every once in a while where the highest-paid, um, either educational employees, certainly educational employees, but government employees in a lot of states are head football coaches or head basketball coaches of these public schools. Almost, almost everywhere. And, and to be fair, you can't always draw a exact straight line between this is Nick Saban's salary and this is what was subsidized by the taxpayers of the state of Alabama. Oftentimes that money might come from an apparel company or from a booster foundation or a separate 5013C. But yes, in most states, um, probably more than 40, the highest paid university official would be a football or basketball coach. So can you lay out what that what you're just pointing to there, that kind of web that exists of um, other ways of supporting these athletic programs. So you've gotten corporate sponsorships. Um, you could see clear examples of this in uh, the University of Oregon's football team, uh, which has New Jersey designs seemingly every week. Nike is right there. Phil Knight is an alumnus. Um, he provides those to the school. Uh, so they have these different Jersey designs every single week. Uh, just Booster networks, all of that, the different ways that um, money flows into these systems. How has it evolved into this complex web of uh, different sponsorships, different booster groups and all of that? Sure. I mean, there there is a uh, an enormous demand among fans and boosters and supporters of the alumni of these institutions to win games and winning games in football and basketball and lacrosse or hockey or any sport takes money. Takes money to either um, above the board or below the board. Just funnel that to athletes. It takes money to build increasingly complicated and sophisticated infrastructure to support those programs. And what we found now um, over the last several decades is that businesses have decided it's good business to be seen as helping to support that. And also because as the consumer demand has grown and as the the broadcasting and the media apparatus has grown, you know, so has the the need for for some of these other corporate sponsors. So sure, athletic apparel is a, is a major part of that. Um, uh, what they're called multimedia rights, which are not broadcasting rights, but these are the, the, the school's ability to sell signage at their basketball games and, and, and ads in their programs and billboards on campus. That will be a several million dollar a year deal. Coke and Pepsi will have pouring rights contracts that are there. These are some of the biggest government contracts uh, attached to education at all. And that will be part of this. And then you have the alumni, the um, non-corporate uh subsidy network, some of that that flows to athletes, some of that that doesn't, to build this war machine. You know, Alabama football is going to have a, a staff of dozens and dozens and dozens of people, and that costs money, and that money has to come from somewhere. What would the impact be if you were to take the University of Alabama, uh, which has, of course, a legendarily good football team, um, or perhaps even uh, we'll think about it in the University of Kentucky or any of the legendarily good basketball teams, where you get these conversations now about how they effectively function. Um, you know, there is the uh, a minor league system for the NBA, 
Uh, but there really isn't a minor league system for the National Football League. So college football effectively functions as a minor league before those players are then drafted or signed to be a part of these NFL organizations. If you were to separate it out from the university to become a minor league football system, what would the impact be on these major universities? Oh boy, that's that's a that's a that's a good question. It's one that uh, reformers and, and some academics are grappling with because there's a potential that we could be headed towards a divorce. Um, it, it, the impact would, I think, depend a little bit on on the institution itself. Um, some of these schools, even in the South, will uh, will look at the, it, having the football team or the basketball team as an apparatus of the university is very important in their ability to um, navigate statehouse politics. Right. It's easier for Kentucky to ask Kentucky lawmakers to forgive the money, uh, particularly in a place like Kentucky, where they might be reticent to give higher education money. So I think if you completely severed that relationship, I could see an argument where that might make um, getting the necessary appropriations needed for public schools to operate would, would be more challenging. I could see some tuition dependent private schools or some uh, religious institutions potentially uh, struggling a little bit. Um the, the fascinating thing, I think, would also be to what extent those college pro- those those programs could maintain their level of facilities and their infrastructure divorced from university. Right. Like to your point about these being de facto minor league systems is very well. It's completely true. Um, not, not just that, to the point where the level of um, facilities, the level of, of supporting infrastructure, um, even sometimes travel that an athlete at a high level SEC school or a big time ACC basketball school may enjoy maybe better from what they'll have in the pros. Duke has better basketball facilities than some NBA teams. Everybody better, everybody in the G League, better than almost everybody in Europe or, or elsewhere in the world. There are facilities in college football that are definitely better than what you'll find with the Cleveland Browns or Chicago Bears. Is you separated that completely? I don't know to what level that is sustainable. I guess so. The pushback might be that you know, yes. Yeah, so it's bringing money in to universities that might otherwise not be appropriated from state legislatures, especially into state schools. Uh, But hasn't it, Matt, then created this arms race, right, where you have these incredibly lavish facilities that you see at places like Alabama, that you see at places like Kentucky. You know, go back to Kentucky and St. Peter's again. You know, I saw the uh, the tweet that was going around that had a side-by-side photo of, here's where Kentucky plays basketball, and it might as well be a professional arena, and here's where St. Peter's plays basketball, and you could mistake it for the gym from my high school. Uh, you'd wouldn't be outrageous to think that that was the case. It creates an arms race and it brings all of this money in, but it goes into all of these things that aren't really, you know, burgeoning the academics, um, the mission that the university theoretically exists for. Uh, it's not going into classrooms. It's going into locker rooms. Yeah, I think uh, this is this is a very common critique among for reformers and academics. I, I think broadly it's true. Now, in practice, it may not necessarily be a one-to-one thing. Somebody, a business that gives money for Kentucky's locker room is not necessarily somebody who would be otherwise persuaded to subsidize Kentucky's sociology department. That money may go to some, if, if not to Kentucky sports, it may go to someplace completely absent the university. But there is a, a compelling point to say, like, what is the, how do the facility improvements or the analysts that we hire or the other things that we do to support this athletic enterprise how do they support the academic enterprise? And I think the relationship between those two, those two things, particularly in the SEC, particularly in um, 
in, in, in the ACC and parts of the Big Ten. It's very tenuous. It's hard to argue. It's hard to argue that <clears throat> this lot, waterfall in the locker room has a specific academic purpose. It exists because we're trying to recruit football players. We can't pay them directly. So we pay them in this other thing. And then also hope to use this as a mechanism to control the athlete. Um, once they get to campus, the, the, that, that is, that is all certainly, I think a valid argument to have. Before we get to the, the ethics and the economics of, uh, college athletics as it relates to the players themselves. I think it would probably be good to uh, ask this very basic question. What is the NCAA? How did it come into existence and what does it do? Boy, um, that, that's, that's a good basic question. It's an, it's an important one. The NCAA is the uh, organization that oversees and runs, you know, broadly speaking, college athletics. And it's made up of presidents and administrators at the local schools. So <clears throat> colloquially speaking, when people complain about the NCAA, and they're not really complaining just about administrators in Indianapolis, all of the bylaws, whether that's about amateurism or about spending or about setting up tournaments are all set up because they were put that way from the presidents, the, the, the local specific institutions. You can draw a straight line from the origins of the NCAA to <clears throat> the panic over these the physical safety of college football at the turn of the century. There were a lot of people that wanted the sport banned because people were dying, uh, including places that you wouldn't expect now, like the state of Georgia was very close to banning the sport. Uh, it's a relatively well-known story. Theodore Roosevelt was a major fan of college football. His son was playing college football. He drags administrators from the big Ivy League coaches schools together. And eventually you get something, the proto-NCAA, the, the proto which becomes the NCAA. Um, now it serves as the vehicle to distribute March Madness money, uh, to set some common rules and regulations about amateurism, about eligibility, about fair play uh, and, and governing college sports. It's in the middle of an enormous transition period right now, just had uh, a new constitution. And a lot of the rules that have governed the NCAA for the last several decades could now change, both at the behest of lawmakers, uh, at the behest of athletes, at the behest of reformers and the institutions themselves. What has been the argument, uh, and I've really seen this come to the fore, I would say within the last decade or so, we've had a lot more conversations around the idea of whether or not college athletes should be directly compensated for what they do, especially with what we've laid out in the beginning of this conversation, just how enormous the business is that they are participating in. Um, Explain amateurism and explain the argument for why the NCAA and these universities want these athletes classified as amateurs and want them prohibited from being directly compensated for what they're doing. Yeah, I, I think you can look at the, at the definition of amateurism as borrowing a lot from these you know, kind of Victorian England feelings about who should be participating in sports. And, and there, the, this idea of like the, the gentleman athlete, somebody that uh, had the money to not need to, to, to earn money for their sports um, and, and was, was coming from a certain class uh, was, was very popular, you know, around, around the, the 1800s in England. And that's where a lot of the, the, the academics and administrators and early college students at these Ivy League schools came from that informed, you know, part of this policy, right? I don't think it was an accident that the leading powers of college football, the entities that ran college football came from places like Harvard and Yale and not uh, Florida A&M 
or Kent State uh, or, or any institution that was trying to serve the sons and sons and daughters of toil, right? These were not land-grant universities. This came from the aristocracy. Uh, and then that definition kind of ebbed and flowed in part due to popular demand and in part because of the kind of people that were playing uh, college sports. We got to a point where we realized, hey, you know, maybe having Maybe it's cool that the Irish and the Polish and the Slavs and Central Europeans are playing. And then later that evolved to maybe everybody should be able to play. Maybe we should you know, shunt African-Americans somewhere else. So that that is that is informed amateurism. And the other big thing is the idea of the term student athlete came about um, through the NCAA trying to get out of paying workers compensation for injured uh, athletes during the, the course of play. If they are regular students who are engaging in, in amateur intercollegiate uh, you know, events, then they're not employees and they wouldn't be liable for those kind of benefits, just like you wouldn't a member of the drama club or the marching band. Uh, and that proved to be successful. Uh, and it's in the interest of universities to do that because that way you don't have to deal with organized labor. You don't have to share that money. Um, and the power structure between the school and the coach and the athlete is very much skewed in favor of capital rather, rather than labor. Uh, that, that's changed, I think. Um, a lot of the popular thinking about that has changed as societal thinking about uh, African-Americans in particular has changed. It's changed because there's so much more money in this world now than there was in the 1950s and 1960s. And um, the, the, the ability for athletes themselves to speak up and be more active has changed from the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And so I, I don't I, I don't want to be go so far to say that amateurism is, is dead, um, but it is the, the what was popular in 1954 is not as broadly accepted and popular in college athletics now for sure. Well and isn't it true too that the the definition of how we consider these things uh, what is amateur, right, has at I would consider it to be at best nebulous, right? If um look at this for an example. In in nineteen eighty uh, the famous miracle on ice where you have a bunch of college athletes, amateurs in the true sense of the word in the United States, not people who are compensated and playing in the National Hockey League, defeat the Soviet Union. Now, the Soviet Union's team is amateur in the sense that there is no the KHL, which is the Russian Hockey League now, didn't exist back then. Um, they were members of the Red Army, so they were uh, employed by the state, uh, but they were not professional athletes in any way that the way that we would normally think about it. But they were effectively were a professional team. They were the best hockey players in the Soviet Union at the time, but still qualified as amateur to be able to compete against the rest of the world in the Olympics. Meanwhile, it is a bunch of college kids who are the ones who are going up against him. And it does produce this incredible story of the miracle on ice. But I think the one of the reasons that it is such a incredible story is because effectively they were competing against what, for all intents and purposes, was a professional team. You are exactly right that it's nebulous. I think the best example of that changing definition within American college sports has been with the athletic scholarship. So at the you know, pr- prior to World War II, uh, you would you you found uh, a lot of administrators and coaches within the Big Ten. And what would be now considered the uh, the Big East or the northern part of the ACC were adamant that giving a, an athletic scholarship would be tantamount to professionalizing sports. It would be unethical. And that the, the proper way for an athlete to, to pay their way to go play football at Ohio State would be to go get a job. And what would, of course, happen in the 30s and 40s and 50s is that they would get a job. And that job would be some no-show bogus job where they would you know, show up once a week and push a broom and get paid enough by the boosters and alumni to play football. And when you look at the places like in the Southeast, 
which were not as financially developed. And many of the, the SEC schools were in more rural towns like Starkville, Mississippi, right? Or Gainesville, Florida. That they would say, well, this is really hypocritical because we don't have the, the economy to support pretend jobs. So we think the more ethical thing to do would just be to pay the, the give them a scholarship. So they don't have to worry about paying tuition. Uh, and, and just like we might for a musician or somebody else who is very talented. And there, this was a this was a major debate. The many of the, the large accrediting organizations in the 1950s went so far as, as to like threaten to take away the University of Oklahoma's accreditation over athletic scholarships. But eventually, um, public public opinion and opinion from administrators won out. And the NCAA rule changed. And now you can give athletic scholarships. And now I think that would be pretty uncontroversial among the public and even among the mo- most eggheaded faculty members would say that that's, that's probably okay uh, to give those. We've had changes about uh, laundry money. We've had changes about the cost of attendance, you know, name, image, or likeness being the, the most recent change. But um, nobody, like not, not even Mark Emmert, would, would argue that what, what, what Walter Camp thought was amateur was the same as what Walter Breyers thought was amateur is the same as what we think is amateur now. And I'm sure we might think about amateur 20 or 30 years ago. It is uh, quite, quite honestly, amateurism is what the NCAA says it is. So as this definition of amateur has uh, changed, as what you've just laid out has been the case where now we provide scholarships, you talked about student athlete being um, the, the designated term there. And there's the student part of it, obviously. Um, haven't we also seen that uh, we've, we've seen this in uh, recent news stories uh, that you also get um, similar versions of what happened with those no show jobs in terms of no show classes, especially for the most elite athletes in these elite programs that are really the ones that bring the most money into these universities, that they have these curriculum that is specifically curated for them um, that isn't very demanding uh, in many cases, but not all, but a lot of cases, a lot of these athletes move on to professional sports, or at least the ones that we're primarily talking about. And there isn't a concern about all the other um, fields of college athletics. We've spent most of our time talking about college basketball and college football. There are a whole heck of a lot of other college sports that would also are also impacted by all of this. Um, so we've also seen those kinds of uh, the no-show version in academics, as well as we've seen it in uh, the work world, as you had described in the past. Yeah, that's that's definitely been true. The, the kind of colloquial term within the industry is helping athletes athletes major in eligibility. And sometimes this happens in, in really kind of nefarious, explicit ways. You know, the University of North Carolina scandal, I, I, you know, kind of comes to mind. Um, and sometimes it's, it's more innocent where this happens just in, in practice because to play college football, whether you're at Ohio State or honestly Central Connecticut State, you know, a, a smaller institution, it's bare minimum 25-hour week commitment. And so if you have practice and you have travel and you have meetings and you have lifting, you are limited in what curriculum is accessible to you. You can't just say, peace out, coach. I'm doing a study abroad in Italy because I was a student at this school. And that is a privilege that is afforded to me as a student. No. Um, and in many places, you might say, hey, I, I got a chemistry lab. And that is the same time we do film study. But like, hey, guess who's not a chemist anymore? You. Uh, and, and so it, by virtue of that, then it, you might find athletes um maybe disproportionately encouraged to, to pursue other majors. Sometimes those are more, uh, those are not very rigorous, sometimes not. But the idea that a college athlete is getting the exact same college experience as a regular student, despite the NCAA saying they're regular students, 
does not stand up to scrutiny, even if you are a critic of paying athletes directly. It, it's just not the same thing. Yeah, I think this next question will reveal my biases in this conversation, but the I think it's true that complexity is a subsidy. And you have these this complex system of rules constructed between uh, these universities and, and the, the NCAA about eligibility, about um, what universities can and cannot do to provide various forms of compensation, what is prohibited and what is allowed. Um, and the more that they have tried to construct these systems of rules to govern for all of the possibilities to um, make things work, uh, I would argue, from the perspective of the NCAA and the universities, out best for themselves in these cases – what you see happen is um, we, you talked about no-show jobs. We've talked about uh, majoring in eligibility. But you also get the creation of these black markets, right, where athletes, there are all these convoluted ways in which boosters or other supporters come up with ways of compensating athletes that isn't directly giving them money. Um, there was the... Uh, you know, tattoos and autograph scandal at Ohio State. There's a story of what happened with Reggie Bush at USC. Um Athletes, and particularly as we've seen them come from uh, poorer communities who can use the financial compensation, uh, you get these stories of how they found ways to get benefit to athletes rather than just doing taking the black market and making it a white market and making it above board and just compensating them directly for the value that they're bringing into the university by playing their college athletics there. Yeah, that is a a very a, a common argument. That was one of the more uh, the larger arguments about trying to move the name image likeness marketplace to become a white uh, market rather than a black market. Um, yeah, that has been a thing since go since 1904-1905. Uh, boosters would look to uh, change or uh, incentivize an athlete for making a particular decision through uh, paying them. You know, one one way or another. The uh, you, whether that was tattoos, whether that was real estate. You know, a, a pretty common way over the last several decades has been through casino chips, um, where somebody might just go to the casino and pick up a bag of of things that can be redeemed for cash. Cryptocurrency has been used for this. Gift cards have been used for this. Um, you know, do, donations funneled to churches or through other nonprofits that make their way to uncles, that make their way to other people, um, and. Yeah, that's that the, the the reformist argument is that by paying them directly would be more honest. And I think that's a variation of the exact argument that administrators of Florida and Alabama and Ole Miss and Tennessee made back in the 40s, that it's more honest to give them an athletic scholarship and put them under you know, our purview than it is to have them lie about this gas station job that they were working before. That's that is there are certain that's that that's definitely the way that the argument goes. We've seen, as you mentioned, the name, image, and likeness, um, the ability for athletes to profit off of that. Uh, I, I always hate asking people questions where I'm asking them to predict something because uh, I know that that's incredibly unfair. But w what do you think is the likelihood that we – are we on a trajectory where you think athletes are going to start being directly compensated, college athletes uh, to be directly compensated? Um, or is that uh, just – going to be resisted so hard by uh, the NCAA and universities that uh, we're probably going to maintain some version of this complex structure well into the future beyond the point where one could legitimately predict that, like, yes, we're going to see this within our lifetimes. Well, the answer I'm going to give you is for, is for crummy radio 
but it's the most honest that I possibly can. I tell people, you're right. Listen, if I had a working crystal ball about this stuff, my newsletter would cost more than eight bucks a month. Like it would, but, and, and so I, 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 on that, I don't know. I, I feel pretty confident that the exact status, the status quo propped up by the NCAA is not sustainable. It's, it's facing attacks from multiple different angles that's been accelerated through name, image, and likeness. And, 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 uh, particularly with these collectives. The the big question I think really comes from the courts because it's not going to be the NCAA itself that's going to devolve this system entirely. It's going to be through the federal government and the court system. And we have a couple of different court cases right now that could potentially change this. We have complaints lodged through the National Labor Relations Board. We have a, a case moving its way through federal court right now in Philadelphia that's alleging that athletes, and interestingly enough, at some pretty non-big time schools like Villanova, um, are in fact employees and, and, are, and are thus due minimum wage. Um, and you have mostly Democratic members of, 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 uh, of Congress, but not exclusively, that have called for giving athletes collective bargaining rights and allowing them to unionize like professionals and, and changing that. Any of those things could blow this system completely up. But absent a dominant external force demanding that change, I don't think it would happen internally. And we look at the other, most of these other big changes that have happened, whether that's through NIL, whether that's through cost of attendance, and quite frankly, whether that's through some of these civil rights changes, those have happened at the barrel of a gun, essentially, for the NCAA, rather than something that they kind of reach to out of their own their own free will. What would the impact be? I mentioned earlier, we're, the conversation that we've had up to this point has primarily been about college football college basketball, uh, these really the huge money makers for these universities. But of course, there are plenty of other sports. There's baseball, there is hockey, there's wrestling, there's softball, there's um, you know a, a wide variety of sports, both for men and for women. Uh, if we most of the conversation circulates around, should we be paying men's college basketball players? Should we be play, paying men's college football players? What would the impact be if we were to uh, – that argument's one, right? We start directly compensating the football players at Alabama, the basketball players at Kentucky. What would that mean for those down-the-line sports at these universities, uh, the ones who I assume the argument would be their existence is subsidized by the money that is brought in from these flagship sports? And this, the university, I presume, would argue they don't have the funds to compensate all of these athletes. Certainly, they can't compensate all of them equally. That's going to create its own arguments over how much should a college softball player be paid versus a, a college basketball player. What does that world look like? I can't say for certain, but I, I, I do think that I would want to challenge a lot of the implicit assumptions that are built into this conversation, because the, the, I think the, the assumption one is that um, very few athletic departments are cash positive. There's no possible way compensation could be given to anybody other than like the Big Ten, SEC, and a handful of ACC programs. I do not believe that is true. And part of that is because I've read for my job, lots and lots and lots and lots of financial reports and budget documents from, from athletic departments. And um, they're just not accurate. Like there, there, there's and anybody that that's that's even done a little bit of accounting can tell you that there's ways to make a, 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 a profit look like a loss. And that there's a lot of, 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 of things that are being reported as costs, like scholarships for major schools that in actuality do not represent like big, big checks. 
I would say that it would be impossible to pay athletes anything resembling a meaningful wage and maintain the current levels of spending on every other bit of college sports infrastructure. But there's no reason that that has to be the case forever. You don't have to pay Nick Saban $10 million. Lots of NFL teams don't pay their head coach $10 million. There's a reason lots of teams in the NFL don't have the same lavish facilities as college programs do, because that's not how they recruit. So could we have a world where, hey, if we suddenly cut our football staff spending by 50% and 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 reset what the free market would, would have for coaches and analysts and assistants, well, well, suddenly we have a lot more money that frees up to potentially pay labor. Um, if we spent less money on facilities, we could have more money for this. And I, I've literally have had heard two power five athletic directors like to my face tell me, hey, now that NIL is happening, we have postponed capital projects because it now makes more sense for us to, to uh, encourage our donors to give that money directly to athletes than it is to build this extra scoreboard or something. So I think that would happen. The other, I think, implicit assumption in, in this argument is that these other sports cannot possibly function on their own. That, they're, that they're, they'll never be revenue positive or anywhere close to revenue positive, and so they, they couldn't function. And in some cases, that probably is true. But we can't talk about this without also reminding the world that the commercial infrastructure to support women's basketball, softball, and even some male Olympic sports is woefully underdeveloped. And that isn't because the market isn't there. It's because of decisions the NCAA has made. So I don't think there's any reason why college women's college basketball can't be considered a revenue sport in the same way that men's basketball is. The top line revenue will not be the same. But is there broadcaster demand? Can you sell tickets? Can you, uh, if you needed to, balance things where you could you could pay labor and, and still have a functioning product? Yes, and that's becoming more true year after year after year as the infrastructure supported is growing. Uh, I think that could be that could become true for women's volleyball. I don't have a great answer about how other sports will be funded in a world where we are more honestly professionalizing football and men's basketball and some other sports. There are, there are potentially some Title IX concerns. There are potentially some Title VII concerns, some employment law concerns. There's ideological concerns. Uh, I am just not ready to say I know it's going to be apocalyptic. Um, I, 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 think, I think it's messier than that. I think it's interesting what you said there about having uh... – you know, been the the person who's gone through a lot of those budget and financial reports to these universities. Um, I, I it seems like this would be another case. We talked about the black market that existed in the way that uh, college athletes are compensated through different means because they can't be compensated directly. You know, it seems like this is another uh, unintended consequence of the system is currently constructed as you have an incentive for universities to be, I'll be charitable, less than honest uh, and forthright about the way the finances of these departments are actually structured uh, because it, I presume it benefits them to do so. Yes, that is, uh, there, there's some truth to that. And, and, and part of it, you know, I don't want to necessarily insinuate that every accountant for these power five universities is some nefarious being. Um, it's, some of this is just hard to standardize. Right, the, how you how you quantify um, ca- the cash value of like non-cash expenses and 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 uh, replacement costs is messy. Like that's why we have a- a- accounts. But there's unquestionably a political reason and an institutional reason to not show that your department is profitable. Because if you're dem- if you're showing, hey, we cracked the books and we we made twelve million bucks, and you're not sending that twelve million bucks to the library, someone at central office is going to ask questions. And this is true for corporate America too. If your department finds yourself with a budget, you have political reasons to spend that budget or else you even if you don't need to, because you want to get that money next time. 
And there's definitely some of that in college athletics too. Let's uh, close here with two questions. I mean, we've talked around this a lot, and I think people have heard in this conversation um, a, a lot of the arguments that exist around the compensation of college athletes. As I said before, I think I may have revealed my own biases in uh, how I feel about this. I, I want to ask you to close and answer two questions. The first question is, in your opinion, what is the strongest argument in favor of changing the system to directly compensate college athletes? And what is the strongest argument against it? I think the strongest argument in for it, in favor, is that it is the most honest thing. And it, it, I particularly from a civil rights perspective, where we look at the labor force that is um, the predominantly generating value for men's and women's basketball and college football, it's predominantly black. And the administrative class and the people that are capturing the value of that right now, whether that's coaches or athletic directors or vendors or even reporters like me, are generally not black. And that money also that goes to support uh, and subsidize Olympic sports, or with a few exceptions, they're, they're not only are those athletes generally not black, they're generally pretty rich. There aren't a whole lot of Pell Grant kids who are Division One swimmers. Like I've, I've literally seen the pitch decks of schools considering starting swimming as a way of like, this is a great way for me to get more people who make $130,000 on my campus and go cut checks of the department after they graduate. So you might look at all that and say, this is out of line with some of the more egalitarian ideals of higher education. Uh, it makes a mockery of some of the things that we're, that we're trying to do. And uh, you know, maybe we should maybe we should pay our university orchestra. We should pay our marching band. And maybe we should pay people that, that do this kind of labor. The, the most compelling argument, I think, against it is, is that there are a lot of unknowns, and it isn't necessarily guaranteed that the athlete will get a better deal in some ways as a formal employee. If you are a formal employee and you don't perform on the field, you can be fired. I mean, you can have your scholarship cut in some places now, but it isn't exactly the same thing if you're fired. Um, collective bargaining, I, and, and this is coming from a guy that's helped actually organize unions, it can be great, but you're not guaranteed to necessarily get a better deal than you could negotiate uh, as an individual, particularly if you're a high performer. Um, I, there, there could be some equity issues or, or, or some logistical problem, uh, issue, complaints here when you have a very different uh, organizing classes with, within a football team, right? The, the interest of the Quarterback is going to go to the NFL and have the third team left tackle, who's going to be a dentist, uh, can be very different. And uh, they're both still important to the team, but figuring out the compensation structure for that could be challenging. I don't know what will happen to women's sports or to Olympic sports or to, to other educational opportunities in this world. Um, and people of good faith uh, who are trying to grapple with those issues honestly can come back and say that this can make things more complicated and there's no guarantees. I have some sympathy for not wanting to formalize that agreement and open up a bunch of doors um, that, that could close opportunities for some athletes. Like there, Some of those arguments do have some merit, I think. Matt Brown, thanks so much for joining us today on Act In Line. It's my pleasure. Matt Brown runs Extra Points MB, a newsletter that covers all the off-the-field activity that shapes college sports. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Gabriel Zsa. Zsa.